You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War Premium episode number 39. This episode comes to you due to the fact that back in November, when I attended the National World War I Museum and Memorial's annual symposium in Kansas City, Missouri, one of the speakers was Dr. Graydon Tunstall. He had written a book titled Written in Blood, The Battles of Fortress Chemichal in World War I, which I found to be very interesting, and so it spun out into what you're listening to right now. This is going to be a bit different than normal, because we're going to take just one very specific area of fighting during the war, in this case, the Chemichal Fortress, and follow it from its pre-war history and the creation of the fortress, all the way through the three different sieges that the fortress would experience during the first year of the war. Just up front here, I want to say that the story of this fortress is one of those side stories in the war that we rarely think about today. Before I started the podcast, I didn't even know what or where Shemeshaw was, let alone how to pronounce it. And even during the early episodes of the podcast, I didn't really do a great job of covering it in the detail that it probably deserved, as was the case with so much of the other things in those early episodes, I guess. However, this area was incredibly important to the leaders on both sides during the first year of the conflict. Concern about the fortress basically determined Austro-Hungarian military strategy for all of 1914. Many of those really ill-advised attacks in the Carpathians during the winter, those were to try and relieve the siege of the fortress. Hopefully when this episode is over, you will have a better understanding of what Fortress Chemichal was, why it was so important, and how it influenced the course of the war in the east, and what it was like to be a part of those three sieges that the fortress was put under. In the decades before the war, the fortress complex at Chemichal became a very important piece of Austro-Hungarian war plans, especially when it became clear that Russia was the most likely enemy. However, much like in other countries, the tactical doctrine of the Austro-Hungarian army swung decisively to the cult of the offensive in the years before the war. This meant that while huge sums of money had been spent on the fortress in the 1800s, by the time that the war started, due to the advances in artillery technology, the fortress was mostly out of date. This did not prevent it from being seen as a very important area, especially after the opening Austro-Hungarian attacks in 1914 failed. From the autumn of 1914 until the spring of 1915, when the second siege was over and when the garrison surrendered, it would control Austro-Hungarian military strategy in a way that was very unhealthy. It would cause the army to launch attack after attack, even though they were constantly unsuccessful. It has been tempting for historians over the years to compare the events at Chemichal to the most famous fortress of the war, Verdun. 
While the events in the East share some similarity, like for example the fact that the fighting over the two fortresses became a far larger political and psychological necessity rather than a military one, that is mostly where the similarities end. To understand all of these events, we have to go back before the fighting, far before the town of Chemichal became the fortress that it would be in 1914. The first permanent fortification at Chemichal was erected in the year 981. At that time, it was just a wooden-walled fort constructed on the orders of a Polish prince. This was mostly how it stayed until the Third Partition of Poland, which took place in the last years of the 18th century. At that point, Western Galicia was given to the Austrian Empire, and to try and control this new area, the Austrians wanted to create a large fortress, both as a bulwark against foreign invasion, but also just to control the local population. They settled on Chemichal due to its ability to protect the areas around the San River. From about 1804 until the middle of the 19th century, there were varying degrees of importance put on the construction of the fortifications in the area. Over this time, the fortress was slowly built up as walls, embankments, trenches, strong points, and forts were slowly added. These were not continuous efforts. Construction might stop for years at a time, then there would be a flurry of activity, and then it would die down again. These changes in construction tempo were mostly driven by relations with Russia. Sometimes there were concerns that fortress construction might antagonize Russia too much, especially during the middle decades of the century, and so construction was slowed or even halted. At other times, construction was greatly accelerated out of concern for a Russian attack. This on-again, off-again period of construction would end after the Crimean War, with only a little more than half of the planned fortifications completed. After the unification of Germany, and with their growing alliance between Germany and Austria-Hungary, the role of the fortress shifted slightly. At this point, the Austrian war plan was to launch an offensive into Russian territory as quickly as possible. And because of this new plan, the fortress was now set up to resist the Russian advances as long as possible, so that the Austrian army could hopefully strike the killing blow elsewhere. In this role, the fortress would be joined by the Polish city of Krakow, which was also home to a large fortress complex. These two fortresses would also act as forward deployment areas and depots, and it was expected that the field armies would pull from the fortress stores to replenish their own supplies while on the march. The fortresses would also be used to shield the armies during the period between when the war began or when mobilization began, and when the armies were ready to actually attack. This role slowly dwindled in importance as the mobilization time for all of the armies dropped precipitously as with the large-scale introduction of railroads. During the 1880s, new effort was put into upgrading the fortress. This was spurred by an increase in the tensions between the Austrians and the Russians, and so a large amount of money was spent on updating the fortifications. This period of construction created many of the strongest positions that would be occupied by the defenders during 1914. Along with various defensive upgrades, mostly on the perimeter, stationary artillery would also be added to the various strong points and in the areas in between. During this period, these improvements were very expensive, similar to how the improvements made by the French, Belgian, and German forts during this period were also incredibly expensive, and so it was challenging for the Austrians to be able to afford them. Eventually, they would decide to stop providing the financial means to continue the, the construction, and just like after the Crimean War, this decision would be made with only a fraction of the planned construction actually complete. One reason that the funds were not available is because they were being invested in other areas of the Austro-Hungarian military. 
In the 20 years leading up to about 1910, good portions of the Austrian military budget was put into massive naval expansion. Well, massive on the Austrian scale, although it would be dwarfed by German and British naval expenditures during this period. The Austrian naval expansion was mostly to keep pace with Italian naval construction, and the growing Italian navy also prompted the Austrians to create coastal fortifications, even though technically Austria-Hungary and Italy were allies. While these expenditures reduced the amount of construction happening at Chemischal, it also had other, and during the war perhaps more impactful, ramifications. It was always known that the fortress would not be on a full wartime footing all the time. That just wasn't going to happen. And this meant that there was always a long list of things that would have to be completed as soon as a war began. Some of this was simple and, and incredibly obvious, like more food had to be brought in, ammunition had to be stockpiled, and there would be a flurry of activity and construction on some of the fortifications, both in the form of improvements and repairs. The problem was that the budget shortfalls for the fortress, they continued to grow, and so more and more work got thrown into this after-the-war-starts category. Food and supplies and ammunition started to be kept at a lower level because it was cheaper, and it was just assumed that there would be time during the early stages of the war to bring the stockpiles up to the required levels. There was also a huge amount of repairs that were put off until later, again due to cost. As this list of to-dos grew longer and longer, it eventually got to a point where it was too long for all of the items to be completed after the war started, although the Austro-Hungarian leaders did not fully recognize this danger at the time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. When the war did arrive in 1914, the fortress would have a garrison of 131,000 troops, which was actually almost 50,000 more than was planned. While on the surface level, having more troops seems to always be a good thing, and in some respects it absolutely was, 
It also caused many logistical problems in this case. Basically, more soldiers meant more mouths to feed, and there was a finite amount of supplies within the fortress. The fortifications that these men would occupy were, in general, less than inspiring. Most of the defenses, which were arranged in three major defensive lines, were pretty old. There were a lot of them, 19 large and 23 small forts on a perimeter of about 45 miles, but the quality of most of them was far less than what was needed. The artillery within the fortifications was also quite old. Some of the guns dated back to the 1860s, and there were only about 500 of them that could be considered long-range guns, but even most of those long-range guns were old and out of date. The only true new artillery that was present was a set of four 30.5cm mortars, but there were only four of them, and they only had a few hundred rounds of ammunition. This artillery situation was a problem, because it meant that the fortifications could be shelled by the enemy artillery without being able to actually fire back. When war was declared, the massive to-do list that had been accumulated before the war became the top priority for the men within the fortress. They would have about a month to prepare, and to try and get as much done as possible, 27,000 workers would be brought in. These workers focused on improving the defenses, building new defensive strongpoints, building trenches to be used by the infantry, and then also building new fortified artillery positions. They would also put down almost 1 million meters of barbed wire, and they created several minefields to protect the approaches to the fortress. There were also preparations for the civilians within the fortress. After all, this was a living, breathing city before the war. And in his work, Lives of Shemeshal, War and the Population of a Fortress Town in Galicia, Austrian Poland, 1914-1923, Kevin Stapleton gives this account of what it was like in the city during these days of preparations. Quote, An Austrian sister of mercy, Ilka Koenig-Ehringberg, who worked in one of the hospitals, wrote in her diary that the banks and court had been closed, and that some merchants had been ordered to stay in Chemishal to provide essential services. She also noted the presence of the Red Cross in the town. She spoke of shortages of milk, bread, and coffee, and much confusion in the streets. The crowds were like a swarm of locusts in town. Two days before the onset of the second siege, Ilka reported that only officers were able to get milk. She said that the civilian population had been unable to find milk for the last 14 days. In fact, there was little to buy in the town at all. While the leaders in the fortress were focused on improving and preparing their immediate surroundings, further afield events were occurring that would very soon result in the first siege of the fortress. In mid-August, Conrad had moved his army command into the fortress to allow for closer contact with his armies in Galicia, who were pushing into Russian territory. But these battles would go very poorly for the Austrians, and they would soon be in headlong retreat. With the defeat of the field armies, the preparations for the fortress were accelerated even more, because now it was clear that the Russians would very soon be on their way. As the Russians closed in, the situation became serious indeed. The fortress, which was commanded by General Kuzminik, gave the order that civilians on the outskirts of the fortress had to be evacuated. Once the civilians were gone, their villages and houses were destroyed to make better observation lanes for the defenders. Many other structures were also destroyed, including a few grain warehouses, which would be seen as a huge mistake during the lengthy sieges. Kuzminik also began to launch sorties out against the advancing Russians as they approached. Sorties were a long-standing feature of sieges, and in this case they had the added purpose of protecting the last stages of construction that the workers were racing to complete. 
When the siege began, as I mentioned earlier, there were 131,000 troops in the fortress, and they were joined by 21,000 horses. This number was important because calculations were being done back at Austro-Hungarian command. They believed that the fortress had enough supplies to last three months, but they were doing these calculations based on the idea that there would only be 85,000 troops in the fortress, and the last time I checked, 85,000 is quite a bit less than 131,000. Added on to this larger number of soldiers, there were also many wounded soldiers that had been abandoned in the fortress by the retreating Austrian field armies when the fighting with the Russians had forced them to retreat west. These armies had also requisitioned some supplies from the fortress stores. The first set of Russian troops to arrive were part of the Russian 3rd and 8th armies. They would be the first to surround the fortress, although they would later be replaced by the 11th army. This was done because the 3rd and 8th were top-of-the-line armies, while the 11th was made up mostly of reservists. More than enough to keep the fortress surrounded, but maybe not a great army to put into the field. As soon as the Russians started to get into position, Russian artillery started to fire on forts on the edge of the fortress. This prompted action from the garrison, both offensive action in the form of sorties to try and disrupt the Russians, as well as defensive actions to try and keep the forts repaired between artillery barrages. There would also be a few probing Russian attacks. Now, these early attacks were more exploratory than anything else. They were not undertaken by enough troops to actually try and take the fortress, and they were mostly designed to try and determine the strength of the defenders and where they were located. The first serious attacks would begin in early October, with almost constant attacks taking place between October 4th and October 9th. During this fighting, the Russians alternated between artillery barrages and infantry assaults, and with over 90,000 men at their disposal, they were able to make these assaults with a good number of troops. However, these assaults were also rushed, because the Russian army was now working against the clock. While they were attacking the fortress, the Austro-Hungarian armies were launching an offensive that was pushing the Russian troops towards the fortress from the west. This new development forced the Russians to attack the fortress before they were ready, and they would only have a few chances to try and capture it, and they would fail. There would be many excuses used by the Russian commanders for why these attacks failed. The weather wasn't great, there was a good amount of rain, the assaults had to be quickly set up and executed without the proper amount of preparation, there was not enough heavy artillery, the list went on and on. But they did fail, and this failure cost the lives of at least 10,000 Russian soldiers, although the Austrians estimated Russian casualties at 70,000 because of course they would exaggerate. The first units to arrive to relieve the siege were part of the Austrian 2nd Army, and they would arrive at noon on October 9th. The garrison was thrilled, obviously, and soon the Russians were pushed back away from the fortress altogether. There was something else that left the fortress at this time, a huge quantity of food. When the relieving troops came through the fortress, Austrian High Command had ordered the fortress to open its supplies to the new armies and to supply them with food. This was done to try and ease the logistical problems that the armies were having, and it seemed appropriate. Acting as a forward supply depot was part of why the fortress existed in the first place. Over the course of a month, this meant that the fortress pulled what would have been three months of grain, three months of meat, and a year's worth of hay from its stores. This would not have been a problem if there was not about to be a second siege of the fortress, but there was about to be a second siege of the fortress, and this one would be much longer.